0: Bad news, bail-in is legal. Climate action that excludes nuclear power is suicide. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 5th of November 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. Today's show we're going to be discussing a decision from courts in Cyprus which relates to the very first case of people's deposits being bailed in and how that's ruled against victims.
1: And even though it means bailing is legal and you won't defeat it legally, you have to defeat it politically.
0: Yes, and that's, um, that's what we'll discuss and then we're going to talk about events coming out of the COP26 Summit in Glasgow and uh, the alternative represented by Nuclear Power. Now, if you like the show, don't forget to hit the like button. You can subscribe and hit the notification bell to be alerted of new shows that we put up and share this program as widely as you can through all the social media outlets to get the word out wide and far. Now, before we get into today's main topics, we have a couple of updates to announce. Firstly, on our, uh, the inquiry that we reported in the last couple of weeks underway into ASIC and uh, submissions are coming due on that on Monday.
1: Yes Elisa, so that's the first uh, deadline in this inquiry to get the submissions in by Monday night and um, we put this show up on YouTube on Saturday night so if you're a victim of ASIC in any way, um, you had an experience with ASIC that has been unresolved, please send a quick email to the uh, inquiry and we'll provide the details below again Tell them your experience. We need this inquiry to understand that the ASIC failure, in the case of Sterling First, which has seen, which has seen 140 elderly pensioners and retirees facing eviction from their homes through no fault of their own, through ASIC's failure, um, is systemic, right? And they need to be reminded of that because this must be a case that leads to an overhaul.
0: Now, yeah, on the other front, um our Prime Minister, Mr Scott Morrison, has made a few slip-ups lately, but he made one quite interesting one at uh, the, one of the summits this week.
1: Well, before we... I want to play a little clip on this, Elisa, but before we do, I just want to point out... We'll put the, the link below as well, but it's, but it's already up on our YouTube channel. We've just put out a new uh, internet ad, which is ted- headlined, With Friends Like These allies profit from Australia's war drive, where we highlight the ridiculousness of this war drive that we've embarked on, that we seem to be leading with China and the way the people on whose behalf we're doing it, the United States, are picking up all the markets that we're losing. So have a look at that and have a look at how ridiculous this whole thing is. But something happened at at the same COP26 conference. Um, where the Prime Minister, in giving his speech, which, by the way, he's reading out from a teleprompter, Mm. he has a Freudian slip, and it's a genuine Freudian slip. What's a Freudian slip? When something else is so much on your mind, it pops out in a different context, right? So watch this little segment of the Prime Minister this week at the COP26, and then watch a direct comparison um, that... Uh, to, to when a previous leader did it in a certain context, and people will recognise the context straight away and understand what it means. The scene is set. Global momentum to tackle China, climate change is building. Of course we're after Saddam Hussein. I mean, uh, bin Laden, he's, he's... Global momentum to tackle China, climate change. So there you have it. Here you have this guy, our Prime Minister, has so bought in, to this insanity about China, he cannot have a conversation without mentioning the need for a, a united front to combat climate change without turning into oh we've got to combat China. I mean climate change. Yeah. Exactly how George Bush, who was lying at the time, remember? Oh, you know, no, no, we're after Osama bin Laden. Um, in a in a in a weak moment, it burst out. No, no, we're after Saddam Hussein because that was the plan all along, even though Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9/11. And it set in train the subsequent two decades of insanity that we've had to deal with in the Middle East.
0: Regime change wars, yeah. Yeah. So, on that note, we're going to get into our first topic for the day. Bad news. Bail-in is legal. And we're going to discuss the very first case of bail-in. Bail-in, for those who aren't aware, uh, was introduced after the global financial crisis. Um, There was so much discussion about how banks were bailed in by taxpayers' money that some uh, clever people...
1: Sorry, just not to correct you too publicly, but bailed out by taxpayers' money. That was the term bailed out. That's why they came up with an alternative word in bailed in.
0: Well, yes, exactly. Um, So in order to correct that, they decided to bail in taxpayers' money, which in the form of their deposits uh, held in those same banks... Uh, in the form of various kinds of bonds and so forth, and shares held in those banks, uh, that, you know, to save the bank, money would be confiscated from those quote-unquote creditors in the bank, including depositors, to, you know, keep the global financial system from collapsing. Um, So, and we've written about the history of this. We can put a link below to uh, a major pamphlet that we did, which outlined how this was all invented by derivatives dealers to protect their Gambling bets essentially. And that's the
1: worst part, Elisa, because it was it's the derivatives gambling by banks that have made in the twenty-first century and the, the, the deck the, the, the lead up to that. But really from nineteen ninety-nine onwards, when the United States Glass Deagle Act was repealed, it was the derivatives gambling that made banks vulnerable. Yeah. So we had the two thousand eight crash, and instead of saying that was insane, let's ban the banks from gambling anymore, mm-hmm. they said, No, no, they can keep gambling, but now their customers will pay for their losses, even though it's not the customer's fault, yeah. right? They're, they're innocent. But that's what that's the pernicious evil of bail-in.
0: Yes. Now, the first time it was used was in Cyprus in 2013. So this was the test case to... And, and they hadn't even finished really yeah. laying out the legal basis or anything for bail-in, even the, in the theoretical domain. However, they saw the opportunity and they ran with it to get a precedent... Um, So in 2013, one day in March that year, people woke up one morning uh, and their deposits had been wiped out. The banks were actually literally closed for two weeks. They couldn't make any withdrawals. Their money was frozen. Um, After that initial two weeks, there were daily limits put on withdrawals at €300 a day. And in fact, there continued to be controls for two years. But there were two major banks that were affected. At the Bank of Cyprus... Everything over, the European Union has a deposit guarantee of €100,000. So anything above that, and there were discussions about confiscating amounts below that at the start as well, but eventually because of the backlash, what ended up... No,
1: no, you're right. That was the plan. Angela Merkel had to intervene because she knew that if they didn't honour the European-wide guarantee of €100,000, then no one would believe in it. And that was the only thing keeping deposits in Europe's banks, right? So they were going to grab everything first and then they retreated slightly to make it over €100,000.
0: So what ended up being the case at the Bank of Cyprus is that 48% of your money in the bank above 100000 went. It was translated, converted into worthless shares, which of course the bank had just collapsed so they were worth nothing. In another Cyprus bank called Laiki Bank, 100% of everything above 100,000 was confiscated. Uh, Other bonds were also converted into shares. Uh, The value of ordinary shares for the regular shareholders plunged from 1 euro to 0.01 euros. Now, it took six years for the subsidiaries of those banks to be sold, Uh, so they're trying to recoup money to pay out these new shareholders that had lost all their deposits and they were expected to get perhaps six cents on the euro which is obviously nothing but it still didn't happen because it took another two years to even find a liquidator everything was just completely dragged out and in the meantime all the assets that they were selling were worth the value was collapsing every day. Um, Normally a bankruptcy proceeding would take and liquidation would take two years but it took eight years to even get to the point of liquidation at which point the assets were worth about five times less than what they had been. During this whole interim period there had been numerous legal cases raised by the victims. By 2018 not one of those cases had been heard and there was certainly no justice to be found. A number of victims um, and groups of victims took their case directly to European Union courts. Most of those cases were rejected. But we just got news on the 22nd of October that one of the court cases has finally come down with a judgment and this was in the Nicosia District Court in Cyprus where the victims were seeking a declaration that the bail-in action by the government and the banks was unconstitutional and illegal. However, the court found that the decree for bail in was absolutely necessary for reasons of public interest and public benefit in order to prevent the collapse of the entire financial system sector with catastrophic consequences for the country's economy and society. Further, the court ruled that the government action was necessary due to a ruling by the Eurogroup on the 25th of March 2013 to preclude recapitalisation of the banks from European Union IMF funding programs, therefore restricting the country's actions to those that did not require additional funding. Now. They also stated outright that at the time the government had no alternative. There were no alternatives to bailing in the depositors. So this, this is very, very significant because as a precedent that Cyprus was in 2013. That laid the basis for the Bank for International Settlements creating a resolution regime or a bailing regime globally, which Australia signed up to, all G20 yeah. countries signed up to, uh, and therefore, this is of the utmost importance for the world to take note of.
1: And Elisa, it, it shows you two things. It, it shows you that the, the the logic of the court in Nicosia in uh, Cyprus is essentially that 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 um, wording there is essentially what the New Zealanders say about the open bank, what's called open bank resolution over there. That this is good for. Um, depositors. <laughs> we we will be saving you by bailing you in, because otherwise you lose everything. That's the logic, right? And it also shows you that the excuses, um, long-term participants and Citizens Party campaigns on this, and we go back to, we started campaigning in 2013, we were the only ones talking about it, um, and then it became a big issue in 2017, um, in the lead-up to the, the infamous St. Valentine's Day massacre of yep. democracy, yeah. um, uh, when Senator Jane Hume rammed through the bail-in law in the Senate with only eight people present in Australia. And that law contains a loophole big enough to drive a truck through. And we have highlighted that loophole. And because it's not an explicit bail-in law where it says, like the European law, we, we shall do this, we shall do this, we shall do this. But they have a loophole and we say that loophole can be taken advantage of under what circumstances? Under precisely the circumstances that the Nicosia court has described in this language. Yeah. right? And yet our government, in answering our um, challenges about the loophole, talk as if such a scenario is unthinkable.
0: Yeah.
1: No, it's not. We've lived through it. right? And that's why we've, we've had this three-year campaign now to try and close up that loophole. The last time it went to an inquiry last year um, in the in the Senate, and the uh, the government was about to lose a vote on it, um, and then uh, they scrambled at the last minute and set up a meeting with Senator Malcolm Roberts' office because Malcolm Roberts is the one who put up our, our um, amendment. Now that there's an ongoing discussion in the government behind the scenes about closing up this amendment. Yeah. The problem is they need a rocket. Up their backside, right, to make them actually focus on this, and, and because they, they haven't delivered yet. And as things stand right now, that loophole still exists in Australia. Mm. That if there's a financial crisis in the banks, which suddenly everybody's talking about, mm-hmm. right, that's going to be all that's at risk. So we will, we are on, on this case, and this ruling in um, uh, Cyprus is something we'll rub, rub in the government's face. And, and just to emphasise the point I made at the beginning of the show, Elisa, these things do happen legally, right? There's a, lot of, there's, a, there's a certain undercurrent around Australia of people who wave the Constitution around and carry around red flags with the Union Jack in the middle and say, you know, oh, the Constitution says everything that's happened in Australia is illegal. It's rubbish. It's garbage. Everything you read about that is crap. Sorry, it's just not true. They do these things legally. That's not the issue. and therefore that's not the solution. You're not gonna fight these things in courts. You have to change the policies by changing the the legislation. And that's Mm -hmm. what the Citizens Party's been fighting to do. And we will get there, we need people to fight with us.
0: Well, yeah, and we've effectively been in hand-to-hand combat with international agencies fighting this since that Valentine's Day massacre in February 2018. Um, Because while we were, working with senators and other people behind the scenes to close that loophole. Within a year of that February 2018 vote, the IMF came out one year later in February 2019 to try to open up the loophole and make stealing deposits
1: explicit. explicit.
0: So they put out their uh, financial system stability assessment of Australia in February 2019 and they called for a full statutory bail-in regime that explicitly includes seizing deposits. They said that financial stability should be APRA's main responsibility ahead of depositor protection. They're meant to have this dual thing where they do both. And it also called for an end to the Treasury giving direction to APRA in matters of bank resolution or or APRA requiring any approval from the Treasury to do so and an end to parliamentary disallowance of any APRA actions in a crisis because this legislation that they brought in for bailing is essentially crisis management yep. legislation. So in other words, there's a crisis, everything, you know, regular stuff is put to the side. Uh, APRA has the power to come in and do X, Y, Z without any approval or oversight from the parliament. And that was that issue was made more explicit this year in May When the Financial Stability Institute put out a report, and the FSI is a body that operates out of the Bank for International Settlements, which defined all these new rules. Uh, And they stated in that report that resolution authorities should have the necessary operational independence to carry out these bail-in functions. Uh, now, APRA, they stated in the report, hosts what they call a resolution team within the directorate responsible for policy and advice at APRA. And that bail-in, um, of course, bail-in protects financial stability, but at the same time, APRA is the agency responsible for activating the financial claims scheme to protect depositors in a crisis.
1: So if APRA is if APRA's responsible for financial stability, trumps its responsibility to protect invest depositors, it's going to order a bail-in, despite what it says.
0: Exactly. So they were calling out these conflicts of interest. Um, they also specified that resolution authorities like APRA are not required to publish details of resolution actions. At the same time, they had the whole thing about advocating transparency and so forth. But in every case, and we've documented them, you can go to the bail-in page on our website for more of the case examples of this. When it's been used in Europe, people have not only been always kept in the dark and and they've always changed the rules as they went along to suit their um, interests. The EU furthermore introduced what they call a pre-resolution moratorium tool which allowed regulators to freeze all customer accounts, including the guaranteed funds under €100,000, ahead of a bail-in, because even the threat or the rumour of a bail-in would be enough for people to, you know, take all their uh, money out and trigger a bank run.
1: Well, in other words, no, this is the thing, because beforehand, before this, um, the rumour of a bank crash would would trigger a bail-in, would trigger a run. The, the the um the cure is worse than the disease. Yeah. Now now Europeans, especially those in Italy and Spain and those countries that have experienced bail-ins, they get the slightest whiff of banks in trouble. They don't they don't wait to find out if it really is in trouble. They know oh sh- crikey there could be a bail-in, right? And straight away go and run and get their money out. And and so this is what this powers for. We have mm. to freeze everything before before there's even a rumor. Yeah.
0: And just to highlight the political aspect of this that you were referencing, the other thing this FSI report said is it called for immunity for the people involved in doing the bail-in, so the people in APRA and so forth, um, because as they said, staff dealing with resolution actions may be at heightened risk of legal challenge given the consequences and sums of money potentially involved in their decisions. Well, yeah, no kidding. You're gonna wipe out people's life savings like these people in Cyprus that lost everything. uh,
1: And And to what end? Let me reiterate. It's all of this is to try and prop up a system of gambling which shouldn't be allowed to exist in the first place. Hmm. All they had to do was go back to the Glass-Steagall Act and and all those countries around the world that had a variation thereof, go back to that and get gambling out of the system. If you want to be a gambler, go on the other side of the Glass-Steagall wall, but you eat your own losses, right? Nobody bails you out. And they can and, and make sure the people, ordinary people, put the money in the banks are safe because their banks aren't going to do anything unsafe. Mm-hmm. That's all they had to do. No, they didn't want to do that. So they've, they've got to come up with these schemes to try and prop it up and let the gamblers still gamble. And then, of course, they're not the only ones doing it. The, reserve, the central banks are printing out money, printing money like crazy to prop it up. And it's just the the, the, lo- the financial system in the last two decades has become an absolute mess. It cannot end but in tears. Yeah. Right, and we have to be ready for that and have solutions, and that's what Citizens Party fights for.
0: And those solutions that you just mentioned puts paid to the lie in that court hearing in Cyprus, which said there were no alternatives at the time. Exactly. But what it requires, you see, is for nations to have sovereignty, as Australia also has to do, and say, well, we're not going to follow along with those um, proposals and prescriptions that the Bank for International Settlements and those authorities are handing down. So that's what our fight is and, you know, join us in that fight in whatever way you can. Now we're going to move on to our next topic, climate action that excludes nuclear power is suicide. And uh, we covered this in the Australian Alert Service in the lead editorial this week because uh, it's a complete farce when you have all these leaders gathering in Glasgow for this COP26 Senate and people like Prince Charles declaring that we need to go to a warlike footing to tackle this uh, when they're not talking about nuclear power.
1: And it gets, we'll give the details to explain why we say that, Elisa, but it gets ridiculous. One of the things we pointed out a few weeks ago in the lead up to COP26 is that before Britain's recent energy crisis, um, uh, any, any uh, energy company. Or, or, or scientific group that had applied to the COP26 um, managers to, to display energy related to nuclear power mm-hmm. had been turned down, then the energy crisis in Britain forced a change of plan because the only energy that was working a few weeks ago in Britain was nuclear power, mm-hmm. right? Um, anyway, so but, for, but the ideology of the people managing this stupid COP26 meeting they want, to, they want to talk as if it's the end of the world, yeah. but their, don't, doesn't, their actions don't match their rhetoric. And the worst part is they picked Glasgow to hold the meeting in, mm-hmm. and Glasgow is the most nuclear power dependent city in the United Kingdom. 70% of its power comes from nuclear, yet they weren't going to let people talk about it as an alternative.
0: Mm, exactly. And at the same time, you've got uh, two thirds of the world's emissions come from Russia, China... India. And so this work. is the other factor. Um,
1: and they're not going along with it.
0: Yeah, so China and Russia weren't not even, the leaders weren't even there in person. Uh, India refused to sign the final G20 communique on net zero emissions by 2050. So this was at the summit prior to Glasgow in uh, Rome. They had to change the wording of the communique to by or about the middle of the century <laughs> to make it fit with uh, India's Um, demand. So India's aiming to do it by 2070 and China by 2060. But then you also had Australia along with Russia and India that have refused the cuts to methane that are being proposed. And of course Australia has opposed the complete elimination of coal. um, Actually this
1: this fight over climate change might bring about world peace because right now Australia seems to be wanting to single-handedly start World War III on its own by picking a war with China yet was forced to side with China and Russia at (laughs) at COP26. So maybe that'll be what pulls our head in.
0: (laughs) We can only hope. Um, But Xi Jinping in his speech at the G20 uh, made a really important point. He said uh, the world must balance environmental protection and economic development. And uh, at his G20 speech, uh, Vladimir Putin stated, he said, I would like to mention the carbon footprint of solar energy is four times higher than that of nuclear energy. Um, and also pushed from Russia's standpoint, increased forestation and advanced agriculture. But those realities, because those countries are thinking about how do we uplift our people? Of course, China's been you know, lifting people out of poverty for the last four decades and done an excellent job of it. They're also lifting um, developing countries across Africa, South America, uh, out of poverty at the same time. In fact, uh, since they launched the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, they aimed to build nuclear power plants in 30 countries that were signatories to the Belt and Road by 2030. So that's a be- much better aim by 2030. But on the other hand of this, um, on the other side of this fight, is that you have the bankers, uh, which are typified by the former head of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, who's now the UN representative for climate change, Um, So he came out with a statement after the COP26 forum saying we've got 40% of global financial assets pledged to net zero. Um, And you know this is where countries, little old countries like Australia have to think well if all global finance is moving to net zero you know, we're, there's a blackmail there telling Australia we have to pull our head in, we have to ditch coal, we have to do these things. And Frydenberg, our treasurer himself, has stated that basically we are at the mercy of international creditors. And so we have to conform.
1: And we're not. We are only at the mercy of them because of Frydenberg's ideology. They, don't, they, they want us to have a system where we don't have our own sovereign credit source in the form of a national bank. So we have to borrow from overseas. And by doing that, that's what puts us at the mercy of these international creditors. Mm-hmm. We can tell them, as Matt Canavan called for, to bugger off because we shouldn't be dictated to by... We shouldn't allow ourselves to be dictated to by anybody on anything. And, mm-hmm. a, and a national bank would allow us to make our own decisions in this regard. But it's, it's just I- ironic. In this case, this government's been um, brought kicking and squealing to COP and having to make a net-zero commitment because of the very thing they're ideologically committed to which is their obsession with letting private finance dictate to us.
0: Yeah, now we want to talk a bit more about nuclear power because um, here we are in Australia, we have one third of the world's identified uranium deposits, we have the third largest deposits in the world of thorium, Um, and there's a growing uh, movement and voice coming forward from all kinds of quarters in this country, um, such as the... um, Uh, Australian Workers Union and the National Secretary Daniel Walton's been a big supporter of nuclear for a while. You've got growing support from amongst certain people in the National Party. You know there's even surveys that have shown a growing portion of green voters are supporting nuclear power. Um, And so we wanted to mention and go through some of the graphics on uh, a new website that has been put up nuclearnow.com.au and this is a group of Australian scientists and engineers Uh, which its aim is to grow grassroots support for nuclear power in Australia by busting a lot of the myths that have been handed down for so long about nuclear power. Um,
1: And and, and, and what they're hoping to achieve is we change the law. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, I want to put up on the screen because they have a whole page on this. It's interesting because uh, the current law that prohibits nuclear power was passed 21 years ago and they describe it as being passed by a mostly empty Senate chamber. Sounds familiar. Exactly what happened with the bail-in law on the great Valentine's Day massacre. Um, Well, there you go.
1: That was a uh, far-reaching... Two two far-reaching decisions passed through a virtually dead Senate chamber.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: This this parliament has to lift its game because...
0: Politics, but we've got to get the people into it because that's where it starts.
1: Well, we're the only country in the world, essentially, that has a ban like this, Elisa, and it's ridiculous. And like I said let's let's be really blunt. I'm talking to you, the green-tinged uh, Australian who's concerned about climate change. If you don't support nuclear power, your actions don't match your rhetoric. There is no alternative to nuclear power. And we're going to prove it with these graphics that this yeah. excellent Nuclear Now Alliance has, has put up. Um, you're kidding yourself. And that's why we're calling this national suicide. So just... So first of all, look at the benefits of uh, of this form of energy because it's so energy dense. And that's its its number one virtue, Elisa, its energy density. The history of the world, if you look at this graphic here, um, compare one tonne of coal, 480,000 litres of natural gas. Now these things are all useful energy sources, but they get increasingly dense. Oil... Was a was a was a leap over coal, right? Because it's so much more energy dense than coal. Coal had a role, then oil. Um, gas is fine as far as it goes, where it's useful. But then compare that to uranium. and The energy that's in a te- ten grams of uranium is equivalent to those things—a ton of coal, a little pellet, four hundred. Yeah, a little pellet. Ten grams is tiny, right? Mm. That's the energy density. Now that allows you to create power stations that don't eat up the world literally so look at look at the image there of a one gigawatt nuclear power plant it produces the same amount of power as a, that, that takes up you know you know a few acres there produces the same amount of power as 11 million solar panels or 939 wind turbines which you know I mean I'm not one to get too um, carried away with the with the visual pollution stuff but Once you got 939 in front of you, I think you'd start seeing it as visual pollution. (laughs) Um, uh, So look at the actual benefits. If our goal is to reduce emissions, this is clear-cut. So yes, coal, gas, biomass, huge emissions. But compare nuclear to the others. Orange is solar, um, uh, utility-scale solar. Yellow is is rooftop solar, geothermal. Solar thermal is red. Um, hydropower, nuclear trumps them all, right? It's, it's, it's excellent. This is the more important one, though, this next one, construction materials by source. Because what you've got to think about, so they, they break this down into cement is yellow, concrete is blue, glass, steel, etc. other. Think about the industrial processes that goes into producing these construction materials. And nuclear... Is so much more efficient to to build, and and and, and it has such a smaller um, demand on resources than any other. Mm. There's no comparison. If we met the world's energy needs with solar and wind, we would mine the world to death, both by having to build all the all the construction materials and the the, the um, all the extra stuff to to do with the batteries that's required yeah. to make those energies. Actually viable. With far worse
0: environmental consequences. Far
1: worse environmental consequences. And then the big one again, the last one there to highlight is land use intensity. Um, again, no comparison, right? Um, the, the, what, what, the, what, now, hy- hydro, I'll, I'll just make the point there, that's, that's the drainage basin kind of idea that feeds the dams, uh, etc., that goes into that as well. But um, nuclear, you can have these nuclear reactors... Tucked away in convenient spaces, taking up very little room, haven't required huge bills of material to construct. Right, the the the, but provide hundred percent reliable and now a hundred percent safe energy. Um, you can you you can have you have technology with small modular reactors that can, um, that can do it at at that kind of scale. You've got technology that can deal with the with the waste. Right? There's a little bit of waste that you might have to deal with long term, but if you do the recycling, reprocessing, etc., mm. it's a tiny fraction of, of what people might think it is, and it solves the problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was just going to add on the nuclear waste point, because there's been a huge push just in these recent weeks with the energy crisis in the UK, the USA and Canada to revive their nuclear programs and build new plants it's all moving quite rapidly but one of the things that i was just reading about in an article coming out of the uk uh, on nuclear waste was uh, at Sellafield in the uk they've got 140 tons of plutonium with a half life of tens of thousands of years and of course everyone has been freaked out about that but the CEO of Terrestrial Energy was talking about how, you know, the technologies now that you can recycle that waste and use it to create energy. He said, we've got a fuel source here equivalent mm-hmm. to a whole North Sea oil field of clean energy.
1: That's just the nuclear waste.
0: That's just that, uh, that location of yeah. nuclear waste there. So, you know, we've always got to be thinking about new technologies. When oil first came out of the ground, what was it good for? You yeah. know, we didn't exactly know... But if mankind doesn't move forward, we will go backwards and everyone will suffer for it. And we have to keep uplifting developing countries, impoverished countries, and we can't sacrifice that. 100%.
1: The, the, the progress of mankind over recorded time and before has been from less energy-dense to more energy-dense sources of energy. That's where, the, that's where the bursts of progress have come from. Wind, uh, the wind and solar is a huge backwards... Yeah, we can do it. Yeah, they work. Mm -hmm. there's a billionaire, these billionaires, they make their money doing all sorts... I'll tell you what, the billionaires in the world today make their money, Lisa, mostly by putting themselves in as middlemen in between existing processes, right? So there's an Australian one, and then they think they they get to decide how the world should run, right? So there's an Australian one named Mike Cannon-Brooks. He wants to build a 125-square-kilometre solar array in the Simpson Desert in Northern Territory to connect to an 8,000-kilometre... Um, extension lead to Singapore that'll provide fifteen percent, not all, fifteen percent of Singapore's power, um, and it's a. You can imagine what's going to go into that project, mm. and it could be done. It could be addressed with the equivalent of something the size of a shipping container in Singapore that's yeah. nuclear. These small modular right?
0: reactors. Yeah. It, this is an amazing technology. You can shift it. You can move it very qu- quickly, very fast. Um, you know, a number of countries are moving in this way and China is one of the countries that's just built a demonstration reactor to export this all over the world. Um, yep. You know, we have to take that approach. So.
1: No, we do. Anything less is... Um, we, we're creating much more expensive sources of energy and by doing that, we're shooting ourselves in the foot long term because it'll lead to more poverty instead of less poverty.
0: Yep. So that's basically the show for this week, unless you've got any final words.
1: No, I just think, uh, well, yeah, the, the, This, this uh, reiterate the point I've made twice now. Uh, the, the bailing question is going to be shocking for most people. Um, lots of things are done that are legal, but can be changed politically. That's why you get involved in politics. Yes. Right? And, and we, we focus on things like we're doing with the Sterling First campaign at the moment, because that is about a bigger picture to do with ASIC and the way the whole financial system is run. And we need to expose the bad actors and the bad policies, change those so we can go back to a system that, that is properly regulated and makes the financial system serve everybody. Right? So if you're shocked about that, don't be, you know, understand that that's, what it, that's the lesson to draw. It's got to be a political solution. And get involved with the Citizens Party.
0: Yeah, so make contact in some way. You can subscribe to our newsletter, get a free sample copy.
1: Oh, and and become a member right join now. As a we're on member,
0: a member, about to say. So <laughs> right now we're
1: on a membership drive, Elisa, and mm. um, we we, we want to we only do these periodically, but we want to do it more permanently now because there's a higher requirement to stay registered um, as a political party. And yeah, please, right now, one thing you can concretely do to help is get on our membership page on our website we'll and join up a as a will put a link down
0: below to make it easy for you to find. Um, And don't forget to like and share this show. Thanks for tuning in, thanks Robert. Thanks Alisa. See you again next week.